it's all good. Acts chapter number 13 in your Bibles tonight. And we're going to be looking at a passage of Scripture that I have never, ever once heard a sermon preached out of. And I think you'll see why in just a few minutes. And I had to dig extra deep and work extra hard. But I'm committed to preaching the Bible. Thank you, Brother Reggie. Preaching the Bible verse by verse, line upon line. I think that's uh, well balanced. I think it's important that we keep the Bible and uh, at the forefront of everything we're doing. And uh, we, uh, we emphasize what God emphasizes in Scripture. And I think that keeps us all in a better place. So Acts chapter 13, and we're going to be looking at the first uh, 12 verses tonight of the chapter. But by way of uh, Scripture reading, uh, let's look at verses 1 through 4. Once you've found that, if you would stand for the reading of God's Word, Acts chapter 13, and we'll be looking at the first four verses. The Bible says, beginning of verse 1, Now there, was, there were in the church that was at Antioch certain prophets and teachers as Barnabas, and Simeon that was called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene, and Menaean, which had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. And they ministered to the Lord and fasted. The Holy Ghost said, Separate me Barnabas and Saul for the work whereunto I have called them. And when they had fasted and prayed and laid hands on them, they sent them away. So they, being sent forth by the Holy Ghost, departed unto Seleucia. And from thence they sailed to Cyprus. We're going to look at this topic this evening, the beginning of worldwide missions. Beginning of worldwide missions. Before we pray, I need to ask a request to Pastor Andrew. Do you have that laser pointer in your office? Could you run and get that for me? That'd be great. The beginning of worldwide missions. Let's pray. Lord, tonight we ask that you uh, be with us and help us to understand these verses. Lord, we'll do a little bit of speculating tonight, uh, not in a way that is um, uh, dishonest to Scripture, but Lord, um, some supposing and wondering. And Lord, um, as we look at these truths, may we be drawn to your perfect will for our lives, whatever that is. And Lord, help us to see the importance of being spirit-filled and being together, the unity and harmony that a church needs to have in order for the gospel to not only make it across the, the aisle or the street, but also around the world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. Well, in the first 12 chapters of Acts, we have seen Christ ascend into heaven. We've seen his disciples organize the first church. We've seen 3,000 and then 5,000, another instance, saved and baptized into the Jerusalem church. We have seen the church persecuted and its early members scattered. We have seen Samaria evangelized, the Ethiopian eunuchs and Cornelius reached, the Ethiopian eunuch rather, and Cornelius reached, and then uh, the church of Antioch established through the ministry of Barnabas and Saul. We've also seen, as we looked at last week, thank you very much, we've also seen Satan's attack on the church, and uh, we've seen him try to tear the church apart, but each time he has attempted that, he has failed, and instead the church has grown and multiplied uh, to, the, to the chagrin of, uh, of, of Satan in his efforts. So from Acts 13 on, uh, we transition away from... Peter over to Paul. Uh, the first 12 books are mainly focused on Peter and his efforts to get the church up and going. Now we're going to turn to Paul and see his ministry uh, uh, as a missionary primarily to the Gentiles with his attempt to take the gospel to reach the uttermost 
part of the world. So, uh, listen, I'm going to put a, uh, throw that quote up there on the screen if you don't mind. Here's my proposition this evening. I pr- propose that Christians that do not evangelize will eventually fossilize. You're not sharing your faith. You're just, beginning to come, you're just going to become a Christian fossil. Furthermore, churches that do not evangelize will eventually fossilize or apostatize. You have to be active in sharing the gospel as a church, as a church body. And if not, you're going to fossilize, meaning the congregation gets older and older and older, and eventually uh, the, the church just has to shut down because people keep dying off. That's what I mean by a church that fossilizes. Now, what would happen to humanity if we just quit having babies? Eventually, we would become extinct, would we not? You need a culture to continue to produce children. In fact, you need a culture to produce children at an average of couple of 2.3 children per couple in order for that culture to stay in place. Churches that are not that are not duplicating more Christians and bringing in new Christians will eventually fossilize. The other possibility of churches that don't evangelize is that they change their doctrine in order to stay relevant. They apostatize. So we see here the importance of evangelization. Evangelization. If not, we will fossilize. One day when I'm dead and gone, I hope there is a host of people on planet Earth who are on their way to heaven because... I was born and lived on this planet. And you, as a Christian, ought to want the same thing. There are people who are left behind, who love the Lord, and that that legacy, that heritage, continues because we are adamant in sharing our faith and we're passionate for the gospel of Christ. Acts 13, Paul and Barnabas will begin the first of three great missionary journeys where the gospel will be taken to the unreached people of the world. So uh, let's jump in tonight. We're going to look at uh, four thoughts out of the first 12 verses in Acts 13 as we consider the title, The Beginning of Worldwide Missions. Okay, here we go. Number one, notice the ministers. The ministers. Now, we're going to do some some, uh, speculating and some supposing and some hypothesizing here. Uh, under this point, but we're not going to hypothesize or speculate at doctrine. We're going to do that over these people mentioned in these verses, okay? So look with me at verse number 1. The Bible says, Now there were in the church that was at Antioch certain prophets and teachers. Look at the list. Five men listed here. Barnabas, Simeon that was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, and Manaen, which had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch and Saul. That's speaking of the Saul of Tarsus, whose name will, in the middle of this chapter, be changed to Paul. And they ministered to the Lord. Notice verse 2 begins, and they ministered to the Lord. I, I mentioned some time back that I loved the church of Antioch. It was located just outside of the port town of Seleucia and was a melting pot filled with people from many different parts of the world. The church was diverse, and its elder board reflected the diversity. Turn over to Acts chapter 11 and look at verse number 19. Back two chapters, look at Acts chapter 11 and look at verse number 19. We see the founding of this church. The Bible says, Now they which were scattered abroad upon the persecution that arose about Stephen uh, traveled as far as Phoenix and Cyprus and Antioch, 
preaching the word to none but unto the Jews only. Look at 20. And some of them, these are the men that started the church at Antioch. Some of them were men of Cyprus and Cyrene. I'm going to show you these two places on the map in just a moment. Cyprus and Cyrene, which when they were come to Antioch, spake unto the Grecians, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed, and turned unto the Lord. So Cyprus is the island where Barnabas is from. So throw the map up there for me if you don't mind. All right, is this on, ready to go? All right, here we go. So Antioch, if I can hold this still, Antioch was located about right where that dot is, okay? Right there, maybe uh, 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 that area there. Cilicia was right on the shore. There's the island of Cyprus. We'll look at that more in just a moment later in the message. Cyrene, this is, all of this here is northern Africa. So Cyrene is northern Africa. Cyprus is an island right off of modern-day Turkey, and Antioch was right over here. So um, you can see the access to Antioch. Way out here, you have Italy and Sicily, and uh, uh, this area is modern-day Europe, and this is uh, heading over here into what's now, uh, this would be considered Western Asia, I believe. And so you can see, because of the Mediterranean Sea, you have people from Africa and the whole rich culture that's from there, people from Europe and people from uh, Asia, Asia Minor here, all congregate in this port town of Seleucia and then on into Antioch, just a few miles outside of Seleucia. So no doubt there was a lot of business done here. Men from Cyprus were saved. Men from the African area of Cyrene were saved. And they got together here in Antioch and they established a church. And so this was a diverse church and uh, uh, people from all parts of regions of the world and um, uh, different cultures. And they came together and they established a melting pot type church. We'll reference back to that map here in just a little bit. Okay. So let's look, uh, let's take a closer look at the five men mentioned here in uh, Acts 13. Notice letter A, Barnabas. Barnabas. And notice the sweetness of the Lord. Turn back over, or rather look at verse 1 there. It says, Now there were in the church that was at Antioch certain prophets and teachers as Barnabas. Barnabas. Let's look at Barnabas here for just a moment. Turn over to Acts chapter number 4. Acts chapter 4, and look at with me at verse 36. Now, we don't have to suppose on some of these gentlemen because there's ample information. Barnabas is one of these guys with plenty of information. Acts chapter 4, look at verse number 36. The Bible says there, And Joseph, who by the apostle was surnamed Barnabas. So he was given the name Barnabas, which is being interpreted the son of consolation. So one thing I read in studying for this sermon is that within Antioch, that they love to give nicknames. That whole culture there was a nickname-giving culture. And so that's important. And here in uh, the church of Jerusalem, they give Joseph the nickname Barnabas, and Barnabas means son of consolation or son of encouragement, son of one who gives. Look here, a Levite, so he's a Jew, and of the country of Cyprus. That's that little island we looked at just a moment ago. So Barnabas was from Cyprus. Now, so when, look here, verse 37, having land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So uh, when um, si- the, the, the folks from Cyprus and Cyrene came together and established the church in Antioch, word got back to the church in Jerusalem that this new church in Antioch was up and moving. They looked through and they found Barnabas, who was from Cyprus, to go up and help these folks from Cyprus and Cyrene get 
this church established. And who was Barnabas? Barnabas was one of those guys that was always looking out for the people who were down and out to come and put their arm around them and love them. Here Barnabas is selling properties and taking the money and giving it to the church so that the poor can be helped. Here Barnabas is coming along and uh, accepting Saul when no one else wanted to have anything to do with him and saying, no, uh, this man really is truly a Christian. You need to uh, accept him and love on him. And then later goes and gets Saul out of Galatia, the city of Tarsus, and brings him in and, and says, help me with this church of Antioch. Barnabas had a spirit of encouragement. There was a spirit of sweetness about Barnabas. And listen, I just have to say that people like Barnabas help a church move forward and go. They know how to come in when two people aren't getting along real well, and they know how to be the grace in a place that is difficult. So we see Barnabas, the sweetness of the Lord. Letter B, notice Simon Niger, suffering of the Lord. Now here's where we're going to begin to suppose and speculate just a hair. Look with me in Acts chapter 13 and look at verse number 1. The Bible says, Now there were in the church that was at Antioch certain prophets and teachers as Barnabas, Simon, a Simeon rather, uh, that was called Niger. And so I guess more accurately the screen in your outline should read Simeon, Niger. But Simon is also a possibility. Turn over to Mark chapter 15 with me. And verse number 21. Now we'll see in just a few minutes that Mark, John Mark, joins in on this first worldwide mission. He gets with Paul and Barnabas and he begins on that first missionary journey. So John Mark, watch this now, was part of the church of Antioch. John Mark had a personal relationship with Simeon Niger here in this passage. Look at Mark 15 and verse 21. Could it be, could it be that Simeon in um, uh, Acts 13 is the same as Simon in Mark 15? Look at 21. And they, uh, uh, and they compel one Simon, look where he's from, a, a Cyrenian who passed by coming out of the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to bear his cross. So Simon, we're told very little about him. Here in Mark 15, we're told that he is a Cyrenian, meaning he's from Africa, and that he is the father of Alexander and Rufus. Turn over to Romans chapter 16 and verse number 13. Romans 16, 13. He's known in Acts 13. He's part of the elder board or the leadership board. Today we would call them a deacon board. He's part of the leadership of the church of Antioch. And the Bible tells us his name is Simeon, but he's called Niger. The word Niger means black. And so that would have been a reference to his skin color. He was an elder in the church. His name was Simeon. He was called Niger because of his skin color. We know that Simon in Mark 15 was from Cyprus. We know that the folks who started the church in Antioch were from Cyprus. Rather, we know that Simon was from Cyrene. We know that here we know that the church of Antioch was started by people from Cyrene, so the supposing continues. Look at Romans chapter number, uh, let's see here, uh, 16, look at verse 13. Paul is writing this. Salute Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and his mother and mine. Could this be the Rufus, that is the son of Simon, that helped bear the cross of Jesus and take that cross to Calvary? So now we can begin to connect the dots into a possible 
history, okay? Simon, and so here is the possibility. Simon of Cyrene became a believer in Jesus Christ, and his sons were well known in the early church. He later traveled to Antioch and helped to get the church there started. His wife and sons were with him. In Antioch, he received the nickname Niger, or the black guy, for being a dark-skinned Jew. People in Antioch like to give nicknames, but that would, have, uh, that would be for another time. He was later joined in Antioch by Paul, the son of Saul, or, the, or Saul of Tarsus, and later uh, yet John Mark, who both got to know and love him, his wife and sons. Uh, years later, after Simon, uh, Simon Niger's death, his wife and son Rufus were living in Rome. They were prominent in the church, there in part because of the unique role Simon played in the gospel story. Waiting, uh, uh, writing to a Roman audience, Mark mentions Rufus and Alexander because he and the Roman church knew them personally. Paul, writing to the Romans, greets Rufus and his mom for the same reason. Now, do we know that? No. Is it possible that the Simeon in, uh, in Acts 13 is not the same guy as Simon in Mark 15? That's not only possible, you could even go with uh, uh, probably. But it is interesting to suppose for just a moment that this man got randomly taken out of the crowd from Cyrene and um, uh, this man, uh, Simon, and helped bear the cross of Jesus up to Calvary and stood there and watched Jesus die and maybe even got saved that day and became a part of the early church and then landed in Antioch and helped get that church established. We see Barnabas represents the sweetness of the Lord. It is quite possible that Simon or Simeon represents the suffering of the Lord. He would have been there to help Jesus bear that cross. Letter C, notice Lucius of Cyrene, uh, sovereignty of the Lord. Look at Acts 13 with me and verse number 1. Now this is the one we have the absolute least amount of information on. And so this will be total supposing. 13.1, now there were in the church that was at Antioch certain prophets and teachers as Barnabas and Simeon. That was called Niger and Lucius of Cyrene. Um, we know he's from Cyrene. Can you throw that map back up on the screen for me, Brother Joe? Is that possible to go back and get that? There's Cyrene. We know that people from Cyrene and that's Cyprus, that these uh, folks from these two places helped establish the church over here in Antioch. We know that uh, Cyrene was where uh, Simon was from uh, that helped bear the cross of Jesus. Is it, is it possible that Simon went back to Cyrene and met um, Lucius and saw him saved and led him to the Lord, and then together they became part of the early group that established the church of Antioch? Boy, it sure is possible. It sure is possible. Here's what I want to say to you this evening is that God is in the saving business. You know, um, the Bible tells us that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Somewhere along the way, Lucius who is a long, long ways from Jerusalem, somewhere along the way, somebody found Lucius and told him about how to be saved. And because the gospel found him, he found Christ. And I just want to say this evening, the gospel works no matter where you're at, whether you're in uh, in Stratford, uh, uh, here in America, Stratford, Connecticut, or you're over in Africa, or you're in Asia, or you're in South America, you could be the Amazon jungle, you could be in the most uncultured area, uncivilized area in the entire world. Boy, the gospel works. And we see through Lucius, this man from Cyrene, a long, 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 long ways from Jerusalem, 
he got saved and he became a part of the founding of this church. Letter D, notice Menaean salvation of the Lord. Now this one's really neat. Look at Acts chapter 13 and verse 1. Again, the Bible says, Now there were in the church that was at Antioch uh, certain prophets and teachers as Barnabas and Simeon that was called Niger and Lucius of Cyrene and Menaean. Look at this phrase here. This is all we know about Menaean. It says, which had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch. Now, in every commentary I read, including in the margin of my Bible, it says that Menaean was the foster brother to Herod the Tetrarch. The foster brother. What does that mean to be the foster brother, at least within the culture of that day? Well, the title, according to John Phillips, And the commentary he writes, here's what he said. Okay, listen, I'm going to read this for you. Listen on purpose. It says, The title foster brother was given to boys who were the same age as royal princes and who were raised with them at court. Menaean had been just such a boy. He had been brought up with Herod, the Herod who stole Herodias from her husband, who murdered John the Baptist and who mocked at Jesus. He is known as Herod Antipas one of the sons of Herod the Great. As boys, Antipas and Herod Antipas and Menaean went to school together. They played together. They studied together. They laughed together. They romped together. Menaean became a believer. Herod became a beast. Menaean became a minister. Herod became a murderer. Menaean found salvation in the arms of Jesus Herod found shame in the arms of Herodias, a woman who goaded him on to ruin. So we look at Menaean, and what do we see? We look at what he was saved from. We look at what he was saved for. He became one of God's choicest saints, an elder at the church of Antioch, and a prime mover in the evangelization of the world. It was through the church of Antioch that the world would see its first missionaries, and Menaean was on the elder board of this first church. Such is the salvation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Menaean reminds us of that. Real quick here, how many of you can look back to your childhood and some people that you grew up with and say, if it weren't for the grace of God, I know where I would be. Amen? I know the life I'd be living. I know uh, the uh, pr- problems that I would have. Menaean ran with uh, Herod, a big deal, a big name. Herod became a horrible man. Menaean became part of the solution to get the gospel to the world. Quickly, letter E, notice Saul of Tarsus and notice service of the Lord. Look back at Acts 13 and verse number 1. The Bible says, Now there were in the church that was at Antioch certain prophets and teachers as Barnabas and Simeon that was called Niger and Lucius of Cyrene and Menaean which had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch and Saul. And Saul, the life of Saul, we'll see here that uh, there's a switch from calling him Saul to Paul in the middle of the chapter, um, is well documented as he is responsible for pinning down half of your New Testament. Uh, The remainder of the book of Acts will follow him around the globe as he gives his life in service of worldwide evangelization. Look at Acts 13 and look at verse number 2. Now, before we read, let me just say, these five men were prominent in the church of Antioch. But they did not, they did not uh, rest on 
power. They were not power hungry. Look at what the Bible says about the leadership of the church of Antioch. Look at verse 2. It says, let's read that, uh, those first uh, uh, six words out loud together. Ready? As they ministered to the Lord. You know what church leaders ought to do? They ought to minister. They ought to minister. Uh, we believe in the upside-down triangle here. In the corporate world, you climb to the top and you boss everyone around and tell them what to do. And in God's world, the paradoxical world, those who are the leaders of the church ought to be serving everybody else. We ought to be good at deference and denying ourselves for the betterment of others. We ought to be busy serving and ministering to the Lord. We see these men, these men all have a backstory. One last thing I'll say before we move on to number two is that while we don't really know the backstory of Simeon, of Niger, since Simeon called Niger, we don't know the backstory of Lucius of Cyrene. Can I say this? They had a story. They had a story. Everybody here has a story. Everyone. And you know what? The question comes down to this. Are you going to be used to evangelize or are you going to fossilize? Uh, these men decided they were going to evangelize. Number one, the ministers. Number two, the missionaries. The missionaries. Look at verses 2 and 3 with me of Acts 13. The Bible says, As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Ghost said, Separate me, Barnabas and Saul, for the work whereunto I have called them. And when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. Let me give you an A, B, C, and D here. Notice letter A. Their calling was sovereign. Their calling was sovereign. Look back at verse 2. It says, and as they ministered to the Lord and fasted, look here, the Holy Ghost said. Look down at verse 4. So they, being sent forth by the Holy Ghost, departed unto Seleucia. So there is a difference between a burden for the lost and a call to the lost. Someone once gave a young man who was just eager to go to the mission field he was an older, more weathered Christian. He gave this young man some really good advice. He said, there are two types of missionaries in the world. I think this is really good. He said, number one, there are those that are sent. Those that are sent are God-called and God-sent. Uh, they, uh, they don't need a man's opinion. They don't need counsel. Uh, they'll seek it out. They know they are called by God to go to the mission field. He said the second group of missionaries are those that went. Those that went. You know, if God does not call you to go to the mission field, you get there and you're not there out of a calling of God, there's a good chance you're going to pack up your bags and you're going to come right back. I've seen it happen a lot. Uh, some people call them Ken and Barbie missionaries, right? they got the perfect display. I mean, they're davenir, they're suave. Every church they go to, the wife's got every hair in place and makeup done just right. And the husband's got, you know, the multimedia presentation to knock the socks off everybody in every church. And he gets up and he preaches the same three sermons everywhere he goes, you know, one of the same three sermons. And, man, they're powerful. They grip people and they raise money and they get to the mission field, but they weren't called by God. And, boy, things get really, really, really tough. 
And there's going to be that moment where if you aren't called to go to the mission field, that burden, when that burden begins to go away because life gets tough, boy, your desire to stay is going to go away and you're going to turn around and come home. Now again, I don't want to stretch this. Look at verse 2. As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Ghost said, Who called Paul and Barnabas to be missionaries? It was the Holy Ghost. Uh, They didn't just go because they had a burden. The Holy Ghost said, You two, separate out from the church, and you two men, you go to the mission field. It's time for you to go. Let me just add uh, this in here, uh, that um, men, if God's calling you, you ought to pray real hard that He also calls your spouse. That He calls your spouse. And that He makes it her calling too, not just yours. And that He puts that on her heart as well. And uh, you need to make sure that you're both in for the long haul. And look, what I'm saying right now, a whole lot of people would grimace at and not be real comfortable with and not like, but I'm sorry, I'm preaching the Scriptures this evening. And the Bible says Paul and Barnabas were called by the Holy Ghost. They were called by the Lord. Now, is God taking volunteers? And the answer is sure. If God doesn't call you and you get a burden and you want to go, and you hear some missionary out on the mission field that could use the help and you want to go volunteer for a year or two or an indefinite amount of time and you go, that's fine. But you just make sure you're honest with yourself and you're honest with those who are supporting you and going that you're a volunteer for the Lord and that your return may be um, uh, uh, may eventually come. And let her be notice their consecration was serious. Their consecration was serious. Look back at verses 2 and 3. Look here, it says, as they ministered to the Lord and fasted. See that there? Look down at verse number 3. And when they had fasted and prayed. Notice that in a season of serving and fasting, the Holy Ghost spoke to them about Barnabas and Saul. Now, They fasted and prayed together as a group. Can I tell you that I've uh, I've done some fasting in my Christian life. I'll be generic here. I don't want to lose my blessing in heaven, as Brother Greer talked about a couple Wednesday nights ago. But I've done some fasting throughout my Christian life, and um, uh, it's a whole lot easier to fast when you're doing it with a group of people than when you're all when you're flying solo. You know what I mean? I'm going to go three days without food, and you don't tell anybody. And uh, there's a place and time for that. I'm not discouraging that. In fact, I think you ought to do it. Amen? But if you get together with some brothers or sisters in the church and you say, hey, for the next three days, let's not eat anything and, or let's not drink coffee or let's get off the of social media, whatever your fast is, and let's take that time and let's pray. Now, notice that uh, God did not, Holy Ghost did not call and then they fasted. Look here. They were already fasting and serving And then the Holy Ghost spake to them. Look back at verse number 2. Look at the order of events here. As they ministered to the Lord and fasted. While they were doing that, the Holy Ghost said, Separate me, Barnabas and Saul, for the work whereunto I have called them. So they are serving. They are voluntarily fasting on their own because they take the work of the Lord so serious. Uh, They're willing to deny their flesh. And as a result, God calls Barnabas and Saul into the work of the mission field. Look at verse 3. And when they had fasted and prayed. So there's fasting. They hear a call. They fast some more. There's fasting. 
They hear a call from the Holy Ghost of God and they say, let's fast and pray a little bit more. Let's be real serious about this. Um, what, why is it that we should fast? I'm going to tell you right now, of all of the Christian practices that are commanded in the Bible, fasting is my least favorite of all of them. How many of you are with me on that? All right. The rest of you, you're more godly than the us, us, so raise our hands, I guess. Uh, I don't enjoy fasting. Can I tell you why? Because fasting means I have to deny my flesh. I don't like to deny my flesh. And I don't think any of you do either. But when I suppress the flesh so that I can pray, I'm going to tell you what I've seen. I've seen God do some amazing things through that. A few years ago, coming into the new year, I think it was 2018 or 19, I encouraged the church on a 21-day fast. How many remember that? A handful of you did that. Some of you did uh, the whole no food thing for 21 days. Other you gave up coffee or TV or social media. And uh, I don't know if you noticed, but from April of that year through about June of that year, we were baptizing people left and right. There were three or four Sundays in a row where we baptized five or six people each week. You think fasting doesn't work? As a church, we denied ourselves. We got hold of God's throne. We prayed and sought God's face. And boy, God sent people as a result. We need Christians who will be more serious about consecrating themselves, making themselves more holy. Let her see their mission their commission was symbolic. Their commission was symbolic. Look at verse number 3. We're trying to drain the dish rag dry. We're trying to get everything we can out of these verses. Look at verse 3. And when they had fasted and prayed, look here, and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. Now, we've seen this concept of laying on of hands and acts a number of times at this point. And uh, what were they doing? They were laying hands on these men and saying to them, uh, we place our responsibility to go to the uttermost, to get, take the gospel to the uttermost. We're putting that responsibility on you. you. We are transferring that responsibility onto you. We are supporting you as your sending church. We are sending you in our place. Barnabas and Saul were taking the gospel to uncharted territory on behalf of those within the church of Antioch. Uh, so we see here that their commission was symbolic. You may remember the Old Testament sacrifices of the trespass offering where they lay hands on that ox or that sheep and guilt would be transferred onto that animal then it would be killed in their place. Here, guilt wasn't being transferred but burden of responsibility was being transferred and a commitment to pray for these men and financially support these men to go in their place was being transferred. Uh, letter D, we see their compliance was selfless. Their compliance was selfless. And uh, I don't have a verse on this, but more of just a point of common sense. Consider this, okay? In Acts chapter number 11, uh, we see that Barnabas was sent to the church of Antioch, this new church with new young believers, to help get it established. 
babes in Christ, making up this body of Christ. And uh, Barnabas was sent, and the Bible tells us in Acts 11 that Barnabas came in, and as a result of Barnabas' arrival, the Word of God was preached and the church was established. And then Barnabas travels and he gets Saul out of Tarsus. Tarsus is in Galatia. He goes and gets Saul. He brings him to that church, and Barnabas and Saul are the co-pastors or pastor and associate pastor, however that worked, and they are the ones leading the church. Now God says, I want you, Antioch, Church of Antioch, to take your pastors, your co-pastors, or your pastor and associate pastor, and I want you to send them to the mission field. Uh, Let me help explain the gravitas of what I'm saying. Imagine that Pastor Lejeune and Pastor McGuire and Deacon Okai and Deacon Owens and Deacon Syrette were fasting and ministering and the Holy Ghost spake to the five of us and said, separate out for me Pastor Lejeune and Pastor McGuire and I'm going to send, have them go to the mission field. You guys would be like, well, who's going to be the pastor? Now, some of you would be happy over that, amen? But I think most of you would be rattled by that, right? Our church leadership, our trained pastors are gone. What are we going to do? Now, watch this. Watch this. In America, we have a network of churches where you can yank and pull. The truth is, if I were to die of like a heart murmur tomorrow, the the mailbox outside would be filled with 50 resumes by the end of the week or within two weeks. There are a lot of qualified people that could step in and take my place. There are qualified people that take Pastor Andrew's place. There are people that could step up and do this. But not in, Paul, not in this day. The church of Antioch, the church was brand new. They weren't networked. By sending out Barnabas and Saul, their compliance was quite selfless because now who's going to step up and lead? You see, we read... Acts chapter number 13, 1, 2, and 3, and we think, okay, yep, God called them, and they put their hands on them and sent them out. All right, see you guys, have a good time. They weren't just sending anybody out the door. They were sending out their spiritual leaders, and now a void was left behind. But watch this. Because they selflessly gave, we find that Saul and Barnabas make it back at the end of chapter 14 to Antioch, and the church is still strong and thriving. Why? When we obey God, God takes care of His own. You can't can't selflessly give and not see God bring in a a return on that investment. Number one, we see the ministers. Number two, the missionaries. Number three, notice their method. Their method. Look at verse number four and five. The Bible says, uh, So they, being sent forth by the Holy Ghost departed unto Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. And when they were at Salamis, they preached the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had also John to their minister. So let me show you how this worked here. Fill that map back up there for me. All right, so here they all are in Antioch, somewhere in this region here. And Seleucia is right on the shore, right here um, in the armpit of the area. Is that the right term? I don't know, but that's the one I use. Bad, bad picture. Okay, so here they are in Seleucia, and now they're going to travel down here to Cyprus. They come right into here to the political capital of the city first. Now, this would have been Barnabas's Jerusalem. Barnabas was born and raised as a Levite on this island. 
the island of Cyprus. So they come here. By the way, this is the region of Galatia. And uh, this is where they're going to end up a little bit later on. We'll get to that next week. So they land here, and then in time, they make their way across the island over to the other side uh, to that city there, Paphos. So that's uh, where we're at, and that's how they're going to progress. If you want to see how that works, in the back of your Bible, there's probably maps that lay out the four missionary journeys. How many of you are little kids in church? You used to ignore the preacher and just look at the maps in the back of your Bible, okay? My hands raised. I did that more than once and got in trouble with my parents. I thought at one point I had the whole thing memorized. Uh, so um, we see here uh, that uh, they travel to the island and they make it there uh, onto the island. So let me give you an A to B here. Letter A, notice the purpose of each journey. The purpose of each journey. Now, they, uh, Paul would make three missionary journeys. The fourth missionary journey, as it's called, is not really... Um, uh, under his control, okay? He's under arrest and being taken to Rome, okay? So uh, three missionary journeys, if you will. Each one served a different purpose. Now, if you ever are planning on doing mission work on the foreign field, think God might ever call you, boy, you really need to sit up and listen right here, okay? Notice the first journey, they were pioneers. They were pioneers. Kind of like, uh, is it Daniel Boone that went and, Plowed a trail. Uh, was that him? I think that was him. Uh, I don't know my American history as well as I should. Uh, but uh, these uh, uh, Lois and Clark, right? Louisiana Territory. Did I get that right, Miss Pam? Lois and Clark? Okay, excuse my southern accent. That's not my southern accent. I'm just making excuse. Lewis and Clark, thank you. Um, Lewis and Clark that traveled, they came across Sacagawea. Did I pronounce that right? All right, Sacagawea, and uh, they, uh, they plowed through, right? They're missionaries plowing into the darkness. This is Adoniram Judson in Burma type stuff. This is Hudson Taylor in China type stuff, except no one had ever preached the gospel in the regions they would go to ever before. And so their first journey, they were pioneers. Their second journey, they would go out. It would be Paul, uh, Paul and Silas the second and third time. They were planners. And so they go through and they're helping get these new churches. They got up and running the first time, getting them established. And the third journey, they would be preachers. They would be preachers in the third journey and they would go through and do a whole lot of preaching in these churches. So it is also of note uh, that each time Paul went on a missionary journey, he took a team with him. He took a team with him. I see a lot of missionaries they go to the mission field all by themselves. Now, I want you to imagine this with me just for a moment. And I, I want to take a moment and sort of highlight this because I think we forget the heartaches and hardships that our, our missionaries we support go through. I want you to imagine for a moment with me that you are raised in a Christian church, middle-class home. God calls you to be a missionary when you're 16 years old. You go off to Bible college. While at Bible college, you meet your husband or wife. You get married. You graduate from Bible college, and boy, you have surrendered to go uh, to the mission field. Maybe you've surrendered to go to the Ivory Coast. We'll just pick a country at random. And so uh, you, uh, you're new, uh, you graduate from Bible college, you get married a couple of weeks later, and you're still just trying to learn how to be married, and now you're cooped up in a broken-down car driving all over America trying to raise support. How many of you understand that newlyweds fight a lot? Okay, the rest of you, tell me how you did it. Amen? 
newlyweds fight a lot, and you're stuck in a car with this person, and you pull up on this church property where you're trying to raise support, and you've been yanking at each other's hair, if not actually, you know, figuratively, and you have to get out of the car and, hey, brother, how's it going? And for three years, you crisscross America trying to raise money. Somewhere in that process, the wife gets pregnant. And that poor woman has to drive from church to church to church while she's pregnant. And then with about eight weeks to go, maybe, maybe she's able to land somewhere, have a couple of doctor's appointments, have that baby, only to be expected when that child's an infant to get right back on the road. By the time they've raised the money, they've had a child or two, they get on a plane and they fly to the other side of the world. They land in Ivory Coast, and it could be any country on any continent, okay? Land in Ivory Coast, that plane door swings open, and they're in some pretty terminal awaiting them. They can hear sounds and smell smells they've never heard or smelled or seen before. They step off that plane, and they're all alone. You know, see, in America, if I reach in my pocket and I take out a mint or a cough drop and I offer it to you, you're trained by our culture to say thank you. But do you know in many countries where tribalism is the thought process, their attitude is, you were supposed to give me that cough drop, and the next time I have a cough, you're going to give me another one. They have a collectivist attitude. What's mine is mine, and if I need it, what's yours is mine. And these, these, these young kids out of Bible college in their early 20s, they've not been trained for this. That poor girl is trying to raise her, her white babies in a country where no one else looks like her. In a culture she knows nothing about because God called them to the mission field. Is it any wonder after two or three years they climb on a plane and they fly home? And we sit here in our pharisaical, comfy seats in our church and say, they were quitters. At least, like Peter, they got out of the boat, right? What am I getting at here? I'm getting at here that we need to pray for our missionaries. You drop that $100 in the offering plate for missions, or $5, whatever it is, don't have this attitude that I gave mine And so, I'm good. These missionaries need us to love them and pray for them and support them and understand them and reach out to them and email them. Most all of them have WhatsApp. Many of you are on WhatsApp. There is no excuse for us not to be texting and calling and following up on our missionaries regularly. Some of you do do that. And those of you that do that, boy, I am thankful for you. I think more of us need to do that. These missionaries need our support. They are doing an eternal work, and they are pioneers. They are trailblazers. They are preaching the gospel in territories where, in many cases, the gospel is not. Let me just say this right here. I don't think the method of going by yourself is the best method. I just don't. You know, Paul never went by himself to the mission field. He always took a team with him. Now, on the first journey, who, who went with him? Well, it was Paul, it was Barnabas, 
We know Luke went because he wrote the book. Right? Luke wrote the book of Acts, and Luke was Paul's physician. He was his doctor. And if you know the life of Paul, he was always getting beat up and thrown in jail. So he needed a personal doctor. So you had Paul, you had Barnabas, you had Luke. Who else? You have, um, you have John Mark. Now he quit. He quit. We'll see he quits right after they leave Cyprus. Uh, but he quit. But they brought along people. And in the second journey, there were people. And in the third journey, there were people. Why? Because there's safety in numbers and there's support in numbers. And I really believe that for those that go off to the mission field, it is best if you can assemble a team. I know it's not always practical. I know it's not always possible. But if you can assemble a team and send a team of people to the mission field to reach folks, boy, there's so much good that can come out of that. The purpose of each journey. Letter B, notice the plan in each city. The plan in each city. We need to move quickly here. Look at verse number 5. The Bible says, And when they were at Salamis, they preached the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had also John to their minister. Romans 1, 16, Paul said, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God and salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. As we will see over and over and over again, Paul and his team would go into a new town, usually a town very populated. They would start in the local synagogue. They would get thrown out of the synagogue, and then they would take the gospel to the hungry Gentiles. Now, a note of interest, I mentioned this a moment ago, Cyprus was Barnabas' hometown. This was his Jerusalem. They left Antioch and began by reaching his People. After a short time in the port town of Salamis, they made their way to the other side of the island and to the city of Paphos. So again, watch the methodology here. They would go into a city. You find this all through his missionary journeys. They would go into an uncharted territory. They would go into the synagogue. They would acquaint themselves with the leaders of the synagogue. They would preach in the synagogue. Um, and they would uh, reach some of the Jews that way. Usually they would get kicked out by the, the, uh, the, the, the brass of the synagogue. And then they would go to the Gentiles because interest had been drummed up there. They would reach the Gentiles. And then they would start a Jew-Gentile uh, body of Christ. So we see their method. Number four, notice their might, their might. Now, as pioneers and trailblazers, we're going to see that they go right at it. If there was any question of who was the leader between Barnabas and Saul, that question is going to be resolved right here in these next few verses. Okay, notice Sergius Paulus's curiosity. Sergius Paulus's curiosity. The Roman Empire, the Roman Empire had uh, control of Cyprus and the Roman uh, and the governor in charge was named Sergius Paulus. He's called here a deputy. Uh, history books tell us that Sergius Paulus was the Roman ruler and uh, he replaced the famous Cicero who ruled there prior to him. When word got back to uh, Sergius Paulus that these preachers were in town, he asked for them to be brought so that he could hear their message. Look at verse number seven. Verse seven. And when, uh, and see, which was with the, the deputy of the county, Sergius Paulus, a prudent man who called for Barnabas and Saul and desired to hear the word of God. Letter B, Bar Jesus's confrontation. Bar Jesus's confrontation. 
Um, the name Bar-Jesus means son of Jesus. Look at verse number 6. The Bible says there, And when they had gone through the isle unto Paphos, they found a certain sorcerer, a false prophet, a Jew, whose name was Bar-Jesus. Look down at verse 8. But Elimas, this is the same guy, Elimas the sorcerer, Bar-Jesus Elimas, for so is his name by interpretation, withstood them, withstood them, seeking to turn away the deputy from the faith. So uh, what's going on here? Uh, uh, Sergius Paulus has invited uh, Paul and Barnabas into his presence so they can give the gospel uh, to him. And Bar-Jesus, who works for Sergius Paulus, comes up and says, Whoa, 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 whoa. What these guys are telling you is not accurate. It's not true. It's not right. I am your spiritual advisor. You shouldn't listen to them. You should listen to me. So we see a battle going on here. The Roman government uh, had no use for priests and religion, but they found that their structure uh, left a void or a hole that government can never fill. What is that? That's a longing for God and a sense of religion, a sense of connection with a higher power. So the Roman government would allow priests and religions to fill that void on this island of Cyprus in this city of Paphos was where the, the temple to the goddess of Venus existed and uh, Venus represented a very sensual God and uh, the temple was large and and big and impressive and uh, people uh, in their travels would stop at Paphos, this port town in Cyprus and they would go into this temple of Venus and they would worship Venus. How would they worship? Well, if you were a young lady living around uh, the city of Paphos, you were expected history books tell us to at some point in your life go serve uh, the goddess of Venus by agreeing to be a prostitute. You would stand on the steps of the um, of the temple and you would offer yourself up to sailors and travelers and the money you made off of that prostitution you would donate back to the temple uh, there of Venus so that the work of Venus could continue. It was a horrible place filled with wretched sensuality. And uh, a bar Jesus was this Jew who had defected. He didn't believe in God. He was most likely an astrologer and he was confronting uh, 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 Paul and uh, Barnabas in their effort to preach the gospel. We see here they're pioneers. They're going to an area where the gospel is not known and the gospel's not been preached and they have wickedness in their face. Letter C, we see Paul's courage. Paul's courage. Paul did not seek to make peace with Bar-Jesus. He didn't look for a point of commonality with him being a Jew. No, he went right for the throat. Instead, he identifies this man to be the fraud that he was. Look at verse number 9. Verse number 9, then Saul, who is called Paul, there's the change, filled with the Holy Ghost, set his eyes on him and said, oh, full of all subtlety and all mischief, He's not parsing words. Look here. Thou child of the devil, thou enemy of all righteousness, wilt thou not cease to pervert the right ways of the Lord? And now, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon thee, and thou shalt be blind, not seeing the sun for a season. And immediately there fell on him a mist and a darkness, and he went about seeking some to lead him by the hand. Wow! Can you imagine that? Paul looks right at him and he says, you're a son of the devil. And darkness and blindness for a season are going to fall on your eyes. And then immediately he stands up and starts stumbling around, feeling his way, graveling and feeling his way around the room and asking for someone 
to help lead him. You know, what did Paul call down on Bar-Jesus? Can I tell you? He called down the same blindness that fell on him on that road to Damascus. You remember that blindness that fell on him for a season? That same blindness was called down on Bar-Jesus. Who is Bar-Jesus? Bar-Jesus is Paul back when he was Saul persecuting the church. Now what happened to Bar-Jesus? The Bible doesn't tell us. We don't know. Did Bar-Jesus in his blindness have time to turn to the Lord the way Paul did? It's quite possible we don't know that, but we know this. He was removed from the equation so Sergius Paulus could become a Christian. Notice letter D. Sergius Paulus's conversion. Look at Acts 13, verse 12. The Bible says, Then the deputy, that's Sergius Paulus, when, uh, when he saw what was done, believed, being astonished at the doctrine of the Lord. The word here, astonished, means to be deeply moved. In his prudence, he sought out the apostles' doctrine. He heard the gospel. He saw the opposition they faced. He saw the power of God upon Paul and Barnabas. This was more than enough for him. Sergius Paulus believed and he was saved. One commentator notes that there is some evidence that in the next two generations, members of Paulus's family were known as Christians. What was Paul? What were Paul and Barnabas doing? They were trailblazing. They were pioneering into the darkness. And with boldness and power, they were proclaiming the gospel. And as a result, this Roman governor, this man of great power, became a Christian. I wonder who on the other side of the world will never hear about Jesus unless some man or some woman or some couple will make their heart tender to take the gospel so that these people can hear. Boy, we need to be tender to the Holy Ghost of God so that He'll call. And whether you're in your 20s or you're in your 60s, boy, God is still calling. Let's have our hearts tender toward that. Let's have our heads bowed and eyes closed this evening. Lord, help us with what we've heard this morning, or rather this evening. Help us to be uh, convicted and prodded and moved. Lord, for some of us, it's a challenge here to go back to a time of fasting. For others, it's a willingness to surrender our will to yours. Whether that's being sent across the city, across the aisle even, or across the world. Thank you for Saul, Paul, and Barnabas and their willingness to go. The truth is we're probably having church tonight because of their willingness to go. The Gentiles were reached through their ministry. Lord, we're thankful for that. So Lord, you take this message, these verses that we've covered, and you work in our hearts as you see fit. In Jesus' name.